Blog Talk Radio. Morning, and thank you for joining us for Three Women Three Ways. We've got this audio thing going on here, and it looks like I am doing something wrong. Um, I am going to try to do this again, Shannon, and we will see if we can do um, do this. I'm not quite clear if we're on the air or not, Shannon. Um, let me. Okay. Are you there, Shannon? Well, I can hear you, Heather. I, can you hear me okay, at this point? I, I'm um, I'm not quite sure what's going on here. So can I ask you to just hang up, dial back real quickly, give me uh, two minutes. I think that we're not on the air. So let's start this process over again, and we'll just start a minute late. So hang up, call me back, and I apologize for the technical glitches today. There's just been a whole slew of them. So give me uh, a minute, and then call back in, okay? Okay. Thank you. Shannon, are you there? I am here, yes. Okay, that was a glitch, and for those of you who are listening, I found out that we are, in fact, on the air, and so apologies for the three-minute delay here and confusion. I was explaining to my guest that my daughter got married last night, and uh, we had, as as most weddings have, you know, crises and happiness and emotion and blah, 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 so I'm not at the top of my game this morning, folks. Sorry. <laughs> so that being said, let's move on and actually talk to our show to our guest. Our show today uh, is Three Women, Three Ways, and we are the show that tackles some pretty difficult topics. Maybe my next one is going to be Mothers of the Bride and How They Handle Tension. Um, but the topic today is much more serious, and it's guns and domestic violence abusers. And my guest is Shannon Fratellone, uh, Fratter, uh, Help me out here, Shannon. Shannon Fratteroli. Sure, it's <laughs> and she That's right, is, yes. Okay, she is a uh, uh, Ph.D. who has studied um, a number of areas about injuries and and, uh, damages to individuals, but particularly in the area of domestic violence. Am I correct, Shannon? That's correct, yes. Okay. And uh, since I'm butchering things so badly, why don't we just have you introduce yourself by telling what you do at Johns Hopkins and um, explain to us uh, how you are are aware of this field. Sure. I'm sure. Happy to, Heather. So so I'm a faculty member at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health in Baltimore, Maryland. And for all of my career in public health, I've been interested in strategies, particularly policy strategies, to prevent violence against women. One of the areas that I've focused on uh, for most of my time, most of my efforts, is really the intersection between guns and domestic violence. Domestic violence, as we we all know, it's a complicated problem, and there's lots of ways to intervene. But one of the ways that I know that we can make a big difference in the safety of of women and women's lives is through through the gun issue and um, making sure that people who are violent at home toward the people that they say they love do not have access to guns. 
So that has been uh, my role in the field over the past 20 or so years, and I'm thrilled that Heather is interested in talking with this, uh, this about this topic this morning. Well, and I'm happy to have an expert on. I have to tell you, Shannon, that I like guns. I grew up in the country. We used to target shoot against hay bales and with big targets, and I've shot 22 rifles, and I've shot handguns, and, and I am not one of these people that automatically goes, guns, evil, bad, horrible. Um, however, there's no denying that guns and domestic violence are not a good mix. Um, we have a number of, of studies, we have a lot of research that shows that domestic violence and guns really bad situation. There was a study um, uh, based uh, by, I guess, I think it was by Prosecutors Against Gun Violence and the Consortium for Risk-Based Firearm Policy. They came out with a new study, and um, they talked about how often the um, um, Violence that is brought about by guns and domestic violence results in um, uh, people dying. And not only individuals, but most women who are killed in domestic violence situations are killed with a gun. I, and um, and the thing that strikes me is that it's not just the women that are killed with guns. Oftentimes, the mass murders, the familicide that we see is perpetrated by guns. And although I certainly agree that, you know, you can use a pencil and create lethality if you're dedicated to it, the fact remains that perpetrators who have guns tend to uh, have some pretty bad outcomes with that. And your study showed that if those guns are taken away, for some reason those perpetrators do not do the same havoc with knives or baseball bats or what have you. Am I correct? Well, so there's um, there's a number of pieces of evidence in the literature that show that, uh, that having a the presence of a firearm in a violent relationship is independently associated with a higher risk of of homicide in that relationship. So yes, having a gun when things are violent is not a good thing, which is which is probably not a surprise to your listeners. The um, the other right. thing that's important to um, to recognize is that there are there are really um, evidence based effective strategies that we can use in order to get those guns out of the hands of people who are violent and likely to be even more violent and more lethal if they have access to firearms. Um, there's a number of laws that exist around the country that prohibit respondents to domestic violence restraining orders from purchasing and possessing guns. And this was really the focus of that report that you just mentioned from Prosecutors Against Gun Violence and the Consortium for Risk-Based Firearm Policy. What um, that report does is really look at the 50 states and say, what laws are on the books at the state level that will allow both um, women who are in violent relationships as well as the law enforcement community to intervene and remove firearms when a domestic violence restraining order has been issued. And when we look at reports like what the prosecutors against gun violence have put forward, there's a number of states, about half the states in the country, have some pretty good laws that allow those guns to be removed once a protective order is issued. Now there's a lot of variation among those laws and um, we suspect that there is not enough implementation and enforcement of those laws, but we have the foundation to really intervene in this problem in a meaningful way. So okay. uh, I'm, but, uh, I'm quite optimistic. Ask, but 
Before I ask you about that, Shannon, I want to give out our phone number because I know I've gotten a lot of emails from people who want to join this conversation. Uh, the phone number for calling in is 646-378-0430. Just go ahead and call us. You'll end up in the queue, and then we are, when we're ready to take your call, we'll take you. 646-378-0430, or you can go to the chat room. There's a link there as you're watching it, and uh, or as you're you're listening online, and uh, ask your question or make your comment, and I'll be happy to share it for you. Six four six three seven eight zero four three zero. So please join in now. Sorry for interrupting you, Shannon. Let's talk more about the report and what the report shows. Sure. So this report was released um, earlier this month, and what it is is a very nice um, detailed look at what the states are doing with regard to that intersection between guns and domestic violence and the ability of the law enforcement community to legally remove um, guns from respondents to domestic violence restraining orders. So if you're in a violent relationship and you need the court's protection in order to help to address that violence, and the court issues a restraining order. In most states in this country, there are state-level laws that say that respondent cannot purchase or possess a gun while that restraining order is active. That law also exists at the federal level, um, but it's important to have those laws duplicated at the state level because oftentimes the states can go further. It allows them greater flexibility in terms of enforcing a law and following through to make sure that those guns are effectively removed. So the prosecutor's report does a real nice job of making it very easy for advocates and uh, legislators and other stakeholders in this problem to say, well, what's my state doing? What can I do to make my state laws stronger? And who do I need to reach out to to make sure that the laws that we have on the books are being implemented and enforced in a way that we can better protect people who are subject to intimate partner violence? Okay, you mentioned that there's national laws. Why do we even need the state laws if we've got the national laws? Well, you're saying that it's because the state laws can be more um, prohibitive? Right. So at the state level, what federal law does is it says that people who are subject to a domestic violence restraining order in which the respondent has been present, so a full, um, a full protective order, um, are not allowed to purchase and possess guns. What we know from the domestic violence research that has been ongoing for decades now is that restraining orders are generally a time when there is an elevated risk of danger. And that elevated risk is oftentimes most, um, most acute when that restraining order is first issued. Now, what federal law does is it intervenes in the second stage of a protective order. So in most states, getting a domestic violence restraining order or protective order is a two-step process. There's what's often called, it's called in many or most states, a temporary order of protection, and that allows a person who's being abused to go into the court in the absence of her abuser and say, look, here is how I'm being treated at home. 
I'm a victim of violence, and I need the courts, I need the state's help in staying safe. I need the court's help to keep my children safe from this, victim, from this violence that we're being subjected to in the home. The court has the ability to, in the absence of that person being accused, issue a temporary domestic violence restraining order. And when that order is served, is oftentimes a time of great risk for the petitioner, for the person who's requested that order. And under federal law, that prohibition on gun purchase and possession doesn't yet apply. So what many states have done is say, well, we recognize that this temporary phase of the domestic violence restraining order process is a time of great risk. And so we want to be able to, in our state, extend that gun prohibition to that temporary phase precisely because of the elevated nature of the risk at that point in time. But federal law doesn't do that. Okay. So that's why the, the state's adding laws to this or adding teeth to this is more important. Um, but one of the ways, one of the things, and I can hear people saying it now, we don't. We believe in our guns. We want our guns. And you know what? I do too. I don't own a gun, but you know what? One of these days I'd like to because I enjoy going target shooting, and every time that I go to the gun range and rent it, it costs me more money. So I would like to own a gun. I'm not against sure. people owning guns. I personally am not. I mean, I know people who just don't believe anybody should have a gun ever, ever, ever. I'm not one of those people. I'm okay with it. But I don't want an abuser to have a gun and to have access to a gun because so oftentimes, you know, as I said, they're, they're used so – it's just such a bad combination with domestic violence. But what I can hear is a bunch of people saying, well, people get – women get these protective orders and they're just hokum. Women just do it um, and the courts just give it to them and it really doesn't have anything to do with risk. And so, therefore, this poor guy is going to have to surrender his guns and uh, it's just hokum. How do you respond to that? Did you know? Yeah, I mean, sure. Um, and sure. Yeah. And uh, you know, I'll just say I appreciate your um, you sharing your perspective. Um, you know, I grew up with guns too. My my dad was a gun owner. I grew up shooting guns. I'm not. I, I also am not one of those people who just sort of says blanket. You know, no guns should ever be anywhere in society. I too don't have a problem with um, with people who like to hunt, with people who like to target shoot, with people who feel that they need a gun um, for protection for whatever reason. But where I get very concerned is with people who have demonstrated that they can and are willing to be violent. And our whole system of private access to guns in this country is based on balancing sort of that access with an acknowledgement that there are people who, because of what they have done, because of violent actions or risky actions, risky behaviors that they have undertaken in the past, should not have access to guns. And so that's really where we're talking about. We're not talking about, you know, widespreading prohibitions. We're talking about people who are violent and abusive to the extent that their partner is willing to go into a courthouse stand before a judge, which is not an easy process, and write and say in open court about the details of the abuse that they've been subjected to and make that a public record and publicly ask the state for help. 
Now, it's true. There are people who sort of poo-poo that and say, well, you know, it's easy to do. I would, I would disagree with this. I'm, I've sat in many, many court hearings. It's, it's not an easy process to go through. But I recognize that there are some domestic violence or some proportion of domestic violence restraining order petitions that are filed and some proportion that are granted that are based on false claims. But the overwhelming majority of those orders that are issued are based on real people suffering real abuse who need the help and protection of the state. So yes, no system is perfect and there are going to be people who abuse the protections that are available to them. And it happens, I'm sure, in domestic violence restraining order cases. But it's not what we see, for the most part, happening with this, um, this form of protection by the state. And quite frankly, when it does happen, let's take the scenario that you presented, you know, poor guy is falsely accused by, um, you know, a, let's say a woman who just wants revenge for whatever reason. He's yeah. subject to this temporary prohibition on purchasing guns. He has to surrender his guns under this temporary order. Well, the key is, is this is a very short-term prohibition. And while the time varies among states, for most states, and I think for all states, it's less than a month where that person, the respondent and the victim, come back to court, and both of them have the opportunity to have a say in the events that are the basis of that petition. So, um, and at that point, the judge decides whether or not to issue a full domestic violence restraining order, which would extend for a longer period of time. But this temporary order that I mentioned, um, which is issued in the absence of the respondent, is a very short period of time. And it's a short period of time because you know, the, the legislators, the state folks who made this law recognize that okay, this is something that could be subject to abuse, and generally in our criminal justice system, we like um, the accused to be heard. And so there is a fail-safe that allows a process by which the accused can be heard, um, and heard in relatively short order. Mm -hmm. Right. So when a woman, you know, these, these supposed women who are probably out there just making this stuff up to make a man's life miserable, um, she goes to court, petitions for a temporary restraining order. Well, as you said, that doesn't all—that's not an automatic given. Um, women oftentimes do not have the request, the petition for a temporary restraining order, order granted. In the case where they do, it is a temporary restraining order, and within a very short period of time, you know, like a couple of weeks usually, uh, or at least in my experience, I'm not an expert, but that's what I've seen. Within a couple of weeks, usually, they're back in court, and, and the person who is being petitioned against is there, who and he can present to the judge his um, um, side of this situation. And again, there's the opportunity where the judge will say, no, nah, I don't believe her. I don't think this is necessary. As a matter of fact, it happens very frequently. And so, you know, we're not talking something terrifically punitive that's an automatic, uh, uh, the poor lady goes to court and boom, the guy's guns are taken away immediately, right? Correct. Okay. All right. And 
you moved, you used the terminology temporary restraining order. That's that little brief period of a couple of weeks where the woman goes in, the judge believes her and says, okay, both of you come back and then I'll let you know my what I decide. Even if you get that, um, and I don't know that it's called a permanent restraining order, but the, even if you get the restraining order, it's for a set period of time. It's like for a year, right? Exactly, right. It's for a set period of time. And so oftentimes they are called permanent, but that's a misnomer because it's not the case that it's permanent in the sense of, you know, for the rest of the respondent's life. It's a, it's actually in, in the span of one's life, it's a relatively short period of time, oftentimes, you know, a year, maybe two years. But importantly, when that restraining order is up, when uh, when it expires, then the respondent has access to purchase and possess guns again. So then he gets his guns back. So nobody's saying he gets his guns taken away forever and ever. It's Correct. just for the duration of those restraining orders, either the very short right. term or the longer term, the little bit longer term. And it right. seems so, to me, just from a logic standpoint, that that would be sufficient to diffuse a situation that might turn lethal during the heat of, of you know, that, that initial period. I mean, it just seems logical. Nevertheless, a lot of judges do not enforce any laws, either city, state, or federal, about taking away firearms. Why does that happen? So yes, we certainly we've certainly seen both anecdotal and um, you know more systematic looks at at restraining orders uh, to know that in fact this uh, aspect of of the law is not always used, and in some cases it's um, it has uh, been rejected by um, by judges. Um, so why why is that? Um, well, it it could be a number of reasons, but. Again, this is a reason why some states, I suspect, have taken it upon themselves to go beyond federal law and say, you know what, we want to take this intervention and um, add some more teeth to it. So what you see in some states is um, language that says uh, if a person is subject to a domestic violence restraining order, the judge shall order all guns removed. So there's an automatic um, protection that's built in by the law that says it's not up to the judge to decide. This isn't sort of at the discretion of the judge. Um, it's actually something that sort of triggers automatically when these restraining orders are issued. So that's another potential benefit and a plausible reason why some states have taken it upon themselves to legislate further than federal law and really say that, you know what, this is such a serious problem that we want to say if a restraining order is issued in our state, then those who are subject to those restraining orders cannot purchase or possess guns, and it's not up to the judges to decide. Okay. How many states, are, do you know how many states do that? Uh, I don't have that sort of at at the at my fingertips right now, but that's one of the things that 
um, you know, that when I talk about these laws that I recommend that people look at and see where does their state stand with regard to if this restriction is something that's judicial, subject to disc judicial discretion or not. And if it's not, think about if it makes sense to remove that discretion and say, if you're subject to a restraining order for domestic violence, you cannot purchase or possess the gun for, for the duration of that order. Are there any states, to your knowledge, that uh, – um, it's my understanding, and I'm, I'm kind of glancing around here at some of my research, because I thought I saw something that there were relatively few states that – I mean, like less than half of the states that actually have their own restrictions, but I could be wrong on that. I was just trying to flip through. I thought I read it when I was doing my research. Um, here we go. Here it is. Um, 15, uh, Ten states mandate domestic violence misdemeanors hand over their guns, Fifteen states require subjects of domestic violence restraining orders to do so. Um, so there are not that many states that are requiring that. Um, then, and there are also some city ordinances scattered throughout the, the country that also uh, can uh, mandate that guns be taken away from domestic violence abusers. I don't have statistics on that, but I suspect that that's not all that common. Um, I suspect. Right. <laughs> do you so, do you agree with my so my supposition here? <laughs> I, I, I do. Yeah, I've never seen anything on that, but um, yeah, that's another opportunity. Uh, but I haven't seen anything that actually tries to uh, enumerate what cities or localities are um, are making legislation or are um, intervening in that way. But you know the way that localities can have a huge impact in this area is, you know, we've been focusing a lot on courts and what judges do and what they can and can't do. But there's a lot also that happens once those orders are issued that determine how effective they're going to be, especially with regard to this gun issue. And what I mean is, uh, so let's sort of walk through the process. You have a petition that's issued um, that's filed by a, a person who's being subject to domestic violence. Uh, the judge uh, listens to her case and decides that there is merit and the state should intervene. The judge um, issues the order and um, orders the, um, that the petitioner or the respondent uh, not purchase or possess guns. So in some states there's an actual checkbox where that is part of the order that's issued. At that point, it's up to somebody to let the respondent know that this has happened, right? Because remember, he's not in court. Right. So at that point, what happens is either a private service agency at the a private server at the request of the petitioner or law enforcement um, will actually take that order that's been issued by the judge and serve it on the respondent. So let him know that, hey, we were talking about you in court this morning or yesterday, um, so-and-so, your, your wife, your, your girlfriend, um, has taken out this order of domestic violence restraining order against you, and here are the terms of the order. You must stay away from her. You must do X, Y, and Z. And oh, by the way, you can't purchase or possess guns, and you need to come back to court in, let's say, 10 days. Again, this varies by state, the number of 
days um, between that initial order being issued and the full hearing occurring, you need to come back to court, and at that point, you can talk to the judge, and the judge will decide whether or not to extend this or to um, essentially invalidate it. So at that point, there are a lot of things that either happen or don't happen that lead to those guns being um, in the hands of this violent person, right? So in some places, state law is very clear and says, um, and there's language like, immediately upon service or request from a law enforcement agency, the respondent must surrender any firearms in their possession. So that kind of language leaves no mistake as to what is intended under the law. If a law enforcement officer served this order and says you can't possess guns, and I'm here to facilitate that process, so if you have any guns, give them to me now, and you'll be in compliance with the order, that's very different from the language that we see in many state policies that simply say respondents to domestic violence orders can't purchase or possess guns. And so what does that mean in terms of operationalizing that language? You know, so you can imagine that same service happening where a sheriff's um, officer presents the respondent with the restraining order, goes through the terms of the order. It's a very different kind of intervention by that law enforcement agency if that sheriff's officer says, and give me your guns right now, or says, and by the way, you need to get rid of any guns that you have in your possession. How do you do that? I don't know. It's up to you. Can I give them to my brother? Um, maybe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it's, it's a very different kind of chain of events um, that's available to respondents depending on what the law says, depending on what those law enforcement agencies in that locality are seeing, depending on how they're interacting with those respondents. So there's a lot that happened outside the courtroom, too, that makes a big difference as to whether or not these laws are actually being implemented and enforced and actually have an impact on the people who are subject to abuse who are seeking the court's help when they file these petitions for domestic violence restraining orders. Yeah. So, uh, and in fact, in many states, um, and I don't know if this is federal, but in many states, uh, police don't have to wait for a court order. If a police officer is called, if they're called to a domestic violence dispute, they can request the guns, that they can remove the guns, can they not? So there are state laws that speak to that as well. Um, you know, but again, the laws vary among the states, and I think there, it's safe to say that even in states where there's really good um, where there are good laws that provide law enforcement with the authority to do just that, there's, there's variation among frontline law enforcement officers with regard to awareness of those laws, with regard to confidence in their ability to remove guns, under what circumstances can they do that. Um, you know, I've talked with law enforcement officers who say, well, if I walk into a house and, you know, there's a, you know, a, a couple there and they're fighting and she's bloodied and bruised and there's a gun lying on the table, well, you know, it's very clear what I'm going to do. You know, that's an easy one. I'm going to remove the gun. 
well, what happens if I come upon another house and he's left? Um, I don't see any sort of signs of physical abuse. You know, she isn't bloodied and bruised. And she tells me that there's a gun in a safe in his part of the closet that she wants removed. Do I, as a law enforcement officer, have the authority to access that gun that's, you know, that's stored away in a safe that may or may not be part of her property? Um, so, you know, there's there's a fair amount of um, uh, there's a lack of clarity, I'll say, among um, many in law enforcement as to when exactly they can intervene when the situations are sort of less than clear cut. Okay. All right. And that makes sense. I mean, I understand. It, it, it must be, I have a lot of empathy for, or sympathy, I guess, uh, for uh, police officers called into these situations. Um, I really do. And it must be very difficult uh, because so much, I, I don't know whether it, uh, so much judgment is required, and maybe it's required in all police situations, I don't know. Um, but it, it just seems like there's so much dependent on an officer's opinions and actions and what he can do, and, um, and, and I have a lot of sympathy there. I can understand, you know, how it might be difficult for a police officer in those situations, especially taking away guns, blah, blah, blah. Nevertheless, um, the report that we cited before uh, about removing guns from domestic violence situations, half of the women who have been killed by abusers, by their intimate partners, had contact with the criminal justice system prior to that dispute. Yep. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I mean, so, you know, my spidey sense says, hey, you know, maybe we should be a little bit more... Uh, conscientious about pulling these guns away from these people, especially based on, I believe it was your research, Shannon, that indicates that if the guns are taken away, it's not like somebody is just going to grab a knife and do the same thing. Could be, but it's not as likely that it's the, the gun seems to trigger um, uh, uh, an acting out that perhaps, you know, uh, a, a different kind of weapon doesn't. Am I in, misinterpreting your research? Well, so yes, yeah, so I think there's um, there's a couple of ways to interpret um, you know that finding that um, that isn't actually mine. I, I wish it was, <laughs> but, oh, okay. but it Sorry. isn't actually mine. Um, and, um, but one thing you know that we that we talk about a lot with regard to guns is not just their lethality, but you know the ease with which it's easy that the ease with which one can be lethal with a gun so if you just think about sort of the the closeness and the determination um that it takes to you know end someone's life with your bare hands compared to the effort that it takes to end someone's life with a gun you can be standing on the other side of the room and you have to move your finger um compared to what it would take to end someone's life with other means. So, um, you know, guns are just a, a very easy way to, um, to end someone's life. And so when that gun is removed from the situation, it, it just becomes physically and emotionally much harder to get to that end point. Um, but I want to go back to that um, the research that you cited that 
that shows that about half, um, or more than half actually, of women who are murdered in intimate partner violence situations have had previous contact with the criminal justice system for that violence. So what that tells what that tells me is that these there's there's there are opportunities there. There are things that can be done um, in order to stop this fatal violence from occurring. In order to stop the violence that's being reported from progressing to a point when someone dies, uh, and that's. That's the real lesson for me is that how can we be better when those encounters occur between people who are being abused by their intimate partners and when they reach out to law enforcement, how can we be more effective with those encounters so that those violent relationships don't progress to a point where someone is dead? So these kinds of um, laws and making sure that Law enforcement is um, authorized and confident about their ability to remove firearms when they come upon these scenes, um, that when, uh, when victims of domestic violence are petitioning the court, that, um, that we follow through on laws that prohibit respondents from purchasing possessing guns, those are real opportunities to intervene in meaningful ways that can that can really stop that progression of violence from ending in death. So what are we doing wrong or what do we need to do more of? So what I think we need to be doing more of is paying attention to these orders that are issued by the court. So right now we did some work in um, with a couple of counties in California um, where we uh, worked with two sheriff, sheriff's offices and a coalition of law enforcement providers in two counties to say what is it going to take for the law enforcement community in these two counties to fully implement and enforce the gun possession and pro uh, gun purchase and possession prohibition on civil restraining orders, civil domestic violence restraining orders. And what came out of those efforts is, first and foremost, and most importantly, um, that this work can be done, that law enforcement can, um, can serve these orders, can um, remove guns, can do better with regard to uh, making sure that during this very risky time in violent relationships where the person who is subject to the violence is trying to separate from their abuser, that removing the guns um, is possible and that law enforcement plays a, a critical role in facilitating that surrender. So, so we need to be prioritizing this in our communities. We need to be you know, law enforcement needs to be prioritizing this. They need to be training um, the officers who serve these orders so that they are well-versed in the law, that they are prepared and equipped and trained um, to remove these guns um, when they run into trouble or resistance from respondents who say, I'm not going to give you my gun. Um, you know, they can return to the court and get support from the court in the form of a um, an order that allows them to search for those guns. 
Um, we need to be doing things like that. We need to be sending messages to our law enforcement community that these laws are important. We want to support you in their implementation and enforcement. And let's make an investment to assure that the people who are doing this, you know, very important work of serving these orders are knowledgeable and well-trained on this aspect of the law, and they have the support and resources they need in order to realize full implementation of this very important and promising law that can make a difference in the lives of the people who seek the court's help in protecting them from intimate partner abuse. Okay. Uh, what 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 we're going to have to do, I think, is for. I think that in order to do that, we first of all have to educate people as to how important it is um, to remove guns. And you're going to have a component of people who say we need everybody needs to get rid of the guns. Everybody has to. This is just another example of how everybody has to get rid of the guns. We're too violent. Blah blah blah. Guns are bad. Guns are evil. You've got that side of the equation, and then you've got the other side of the equation that says, okay, so we're going, we've got all these poor people who are accused of domestic violence, who nothing ever happens with it, and, and you're going to be snatching away their constitutionally allowed, uh, permitted guns because of something that might happen. And isn't that unconstitutional? Yeah, so th no doubt there are there are people, there's a proportion of the population on both of them that sort of sit in both of those camps. But what I would argue, and um, it's backed by polling, um, polling data that we've done out of our center that have come out of other places, is that while, yes, there are people who sort of sit on both extremes, those are really a minority of the population. For most of the population, when you ask them about very specific gun policies like, do you think that people who are subject to domestic violence restraining orders should um, be able to legally purchase and possess guns, most people say no. And by most people, I mean not just the general public, I mean Republicans and Democrats, um, gun owners and non-gun owners, um, people who identify as members of the NRA. Um, so what we see is that on this issue in particular, but on, on many issues with regard to gun policy, when you, when you sort of say to people, look, look at this very specific policy. If someone has been violent at home to someone they profess to love, do you think they should have guns? Most people say no. Most people are okay with that. And in part, that's reflected, I think, in the diversity of states that have gone beyond federal law to legislate in the ways that we have um, been discussing here. Um, you, cited, uh, you cited some number that I think said 15 states mandate that um, respondents to domestic violence protective orders surrender their guns. Um, beyond that mandate, um, it's about half of uh, half of states that legislate in this area generally, so they might not mandate uh, surrender, but they do go beyond what federal law says. And it's not just sort of a bi-coastal phenomenon, right? It's not just the states on the coast. You know, there are states in the middle that have these laws. So this is the type of policy, I think, and I've talked to a lot of people on this. I've seen polling data on this. This is the type of intervention that people understand. You know, people get that, gosh, if you're, if you're 
beating up on, you know, your wife or, you know, the mother of your children or your girlfriend, it just doesn't make sense that you should be able to legally purchase and possess a gun. So I think that uh, it's this kind of policy isn't as sort of subject to that polarizing debate that we oftentimes see in this country with regard to guns. Um, I think this is one that we can, as a country, um, back, get, a, get large majorities of the population to back. And, you know, as I said, our polling data show that people are okay with this kind of restriction. So we get back to this issue of, uh, you know, in, in, in the states that have relinquishment laws but where judges don't often order the abusers to surrender guns. Um, and I'm, I'm looking at a particular report that looked at Rhode Island. Rhode Island has a gun safety law that, um, and, and the, that's supposed to require um, people under the protective orders, you know, who are subject to protective orders to surrender their guns. But the judge apparently has to order that it be done. It's just not automatically done. And they found that only 5% of the judges ordered the firearms to be removed from these people who qualified under this law. So mm-hmm. where's the the breakdown here? Um, because obviously if we're seeing it in one place, we're probably, you know, it's probably other places. Usually things don't occur just one little isolated way. So where is the breakdown here? Um, is it is it a um, an issue of um, paperwork? Is it an issue of understanding? What do you think would be the issue here? Right. Well, so Rhode Island law, as I understand it, is one of those may-issue states as opposed to a shall-issue state. So the judges have discretion to order those guns removed. Um, so I think, so I would say a couple things are happening. Um, you know, because of the really, really low numbers, that 5% number, what I suspect is going on is not anything deliberately malicious, um, but rather just a lack of awareness, a lack of appreciation for the real risk that comes with having people who are violent toward their intimate partners have access to guns. I suspect that that's first and foremost what's going on here is that it's just not on the radar screen of the people who are making these decisions. So that's something that needs to change, right? We need to have more conversations. We need to better educate the people who have this discretionary authority. And it's it's the judges, it's the, you know, it's the advocates who are who are um, helping the petitioners through the court process. Um, you know, there's a number of ways in which we can raise awareness about the real threat that exists when people who are violent at home have easy access to guns. So I suspect that that's most of what's going on um, in Rhode Island is that just, there's just a lack of awareness. And, you know, Heather, I don't know if you've been, um, you know, sat in some of these domestic violence restraining order courts. Um, as I mentioned, I'm in Baltimore. We in the city have a court, a civil court, that's dedicated to hearing petitions for domestic violence restraining orders. And I've sat in that court on many days just to observe what goes on. And there's a lot of cases that happen. These judges are being asked to make decisions about cases um, in a relatively short amount of time. Um, so 
you know, there's a there's a procedural thing that happens that they have to get sort of through the docket. Um, but I suspect that a lot of the explanation between that five behind that five percent is a lack of awareness, um, a lack of petitioners not asking, not knowing that they can ask. Um, and there is, you know, I would say a real opportunity in Rhode Island and around this country to make this more of a priority to raise awareness about this threat and use the laws that are on the books to better protect people who are subject to violence in their homes. You uh, triggered a, a question in me when you said the, that the victims don't know to ask. Here in King County, Washington, where I live, if a, a, a protection order is served, the, there is a, an advocate from the court who will call that victim and say, do you know if he has guns? Do you know if he owns firearms? Do you know blah, 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 along with other things? So what you're saying is that that's not often done? I mean, to put the onus of knowing to ask for <laughs> the court to take away somebody's guns when you're asking for a protection order, that's a really stressful period for most women. It's not something that's done casually, and it's usually done during a time of extreme stress. And and I, Absolutely. as a victim, supposed to know to ask? I mean, what is that? Right. Right. It's it's certainly not ideal. It's it's far from ideal. Um, so that what you've described in King County is wonderful, but that is not standard practice in, um, you know, counties throughout this country. Um, so little changes. So, for instance, there are some places that have a box. So part of the form that um, a person would fill out when petitioning the court for this would be does you know, does the respondent, does your partner have guns? So by just sort of adding a checkbox and asking that as part of the petition process, that's a way to sort of very easily sort of remove that onus of responsibility from the victim because I agree with you, you know, she's got a lot going on when she's walking into court to do this and, um, to put that responsibility on her is is not right in in a lot of ways, um, but it's easy. It would be easy enough to have that be part of the paperwork that she fills out when requesting this protection from the court. Um, but what what you've described in King County is that's fabulous. But again, it's yeah. not something that exists around the country by any means. Well, I think it exists in areas where they've decided domestic violence is a priority. Um, and when you look at the numbers, it's hard for me to understand why a, a, a judicial district wouldn't decide that domestic violence is a priority, but that's just my personal opinion. Um, we have a, a comment here that kind of is throwing me for a loop. My boyfriend, I got a protection order, and nobody asked him or took away his guns. Is that just common, or is that something with boyfriend? So this is, again, something that's going to vary by state laws. Um, in in some states, uh, it's uh, a, a person, a woman like your um, your listener, wouldn't be able to get a protection order against someone who was their, their boyfriend. Um, you know, it's it's restricted to people who are married couples or cohabitating or people who have a child in common. So that's another aspect of the law that um, is important to recognize that varies um, among states. 
But I'm, I'm quite frankly, I'm not surprised by your listeners' um, story. I'm, I'm saddened, um, but I'm not surprised because, you know, again, you mentioned this Rhode Island data, and 5% of the protective orders had a provision that asked, you know, guns to be removed. Um, so I'm not surprised because, you know, in the places that I've looked, where I've looked, it's just, by and large, it's not standard practice. It's not the way business is done in most localities. Um, you know, these orders are being served, and guns just aren't what um, what people are thinking about. No. Um I I think that <clears throat> excuse me I'm looking at the clock and I'm going gosh there's so much so many tactics we could still take and I'm trying to let's talk about what can we do about this what can we do about this first of all what can I do as an individual who may be seeking a protection order and what can I do th- about this as a citizen who is concerned about this because you know I mean so I think oftentimes people delude themselves, and they think that because they're in a wonderful relationship that all of this stuff doesn't happen to them. It, what doesn't, it will never touch them. The fact is there are many situations where neighbors, visitors, whatever, are caught in gunfire from some abuser who's deciding that he's going to get even with his, his spouse or his, his, his girlfriend or whatever. I mean, you can delude yourself into thinking that this is not your problem, but the fact is, it could be, and you wouldn't even know it. So as a citizen, just as, a, as an individual who's concerned about this issue, what would I do? And as a potential victim, what would I do? Yeah. So so I'm glad you raised this sort of idea or this, this sort of notion that I think um, that many of us like to hold on to, that intimate partner violence isn't something that affects my life. I've got to worry about paying the bills and feeding my kids, and this isn't really something that's ever going to come into play for me. So I have only so many hours in the day, so I can't sort of devote my precious, um, you know, my precious time to um, issues which aren't going to affect me, which, you know, of course, that, that makes sense, but the reality is is that I've talked with and I've heard from so many survivors, so many family members who have lost the women in their family, and almost without fail, their stories begin with something like what you've just said. I never thought this would happen to me. I never thought this would happen to my family. We're a good family. We don't have these kinds of problems or however you want to say it. I had no idea that my neighbor was living this life. The reality is, is this is something that, unfortunately, many of us are going to experience, if not directly, through the friendships and relationships and family um, members that we know. It's, um, It's very common, and so we need to be aware, as a community, of this problem, and we're going to be a better society if we're all engaged in this problem that affects far too many people, far too many women, far too many families in our country. But what can we do about it? So we started off by talking about that Prosecutors Against Violence report. That is hot off the press's report. So the information in that report is current and up-to-date. It includes information about the laws in every state in this country. 
So what I would suggest to your listeners who are interested in this issue, who want to do something about to this, this issue, get smart about how these removal laws for domestic violence restraining orders, about what they say in your state, and you can do that through this report. And look at the recommendations in this that report and see how they stack up against what your state is doing. Are there ways to make those laws stronger? Are there things that you can do in terms of reaching out and having conversations with your local um, sheriff's office or with the criminal justice community, with the prosecutors in your community, with, with the courts in your community to let them know that you are a member of the community in which they are charged with um, protecting the public. And this is an issue that is important to you, and it's an issue that you believe we need to be doing more on. So, you know, your listeners can be advocates for change. Your, your listeners can elevate this issue for the people who are charged with implementing and enforcing these laws. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, if there are people who are listening who are currently in an abusive relationship and are looking to get out and are contemplating a domestic violence restraining order, um, know that, you know, again, be familiar with the laws that exist in your state. And if you move forward with that protective order, consider, you know, if you want to include any abuse that you've suffered that involves guns as part of your statement and consider how much you want to be very direct in your request to the court about whether or not it's important to you to make sure that you're, um, the person who's abusing you doesn't have access to guns and let the court know that you expect them to take that law seriously. Well, and I uh, think so those the are important thing is, is that if you go to court to seek a protection order, at least let them know that he has access to guns. If you can't decide whether mm -hmm. it's let the court decide. Tell them that he has access to guns, if that, at the very right. least. Shannon, I'm looking at our clock. We have just slightly over a minute left, and I think that we have covered so much, and I appreciate your expertise so much. I want to, again, reference that report for people who want to look it up. It's the Prosecutors Against Gun Violence and the Consortium for Risk-Based Firearm Policy. And it's a very comprehensive report. And, again, Prosecutors Against Gun Violence. Probably if you just Google that, you'll be able to find that report. I always end our show with a quote, and I think that this is a very significant quote uh, for us, Shannon. And this is from um, the uh, Media Matters, and it says, The presence of a gun makes it five times more likely domestic violence will turn into murder. Five times more likely. Thank you so much for for joining me, Shannon. I appreciate your expertise. Thank you for the work that you do. Please, please continue to do so. And thank you, listeners, for listening and getting past our awkward start this morning. And I always make the joke that nobody listens to my show because of the technical expertise. <laughs> so bear with me whenever you can. Also, please join us next week. We are starting month addressing the issue of the crisis in the family courts, and my guest will be Barry Goldstein. Thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. See you next week. Mm -hmm.